This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break, and at the worst possible time. Call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. That's my opening statement, folks. All I can do is sigh as this cannibalism by the GOP establishment, the donor class and the party elites and the conservative media elite, not all of them, most of them now, continue to try to steal the nomination. That's what it's at. That's the point it's at right now. They're trying to steal the nomination from Donald Trump. It reminds me of the 2000 election. When Al Gore and the Democrats tried to steal the election from George W. Bush, there's a lot of parallels here. Welcome to the program. So this continues. The presumptive nominee for the GOP position for President of the United States, Donald Trump. I say presumptive, but this is, unless some hijinks goes on and some chicanery behind the scenes, The convention is just a formality. That's all those things are meant to be. And it's the same on the left. It's just a formality. But not according to these so-called conservatives. Principal conservatives. I should point that out. Not not just conservatives in general. So-called principled conservatives. As a matter of fact, I'm going to start referring to myself no longer as a conservative, but as a constitutionalist. The definition of what a conservative is right now is so blurred. I don't even know what it is. As some of these so-called principled conservatives continue to try to cut the tires of Donald Trump, who the voters, and I understand the primary process, it's not really an election, But don't tell the American people to go out and vote in all of these state primaries, and then when they do it, tell them, April Fools, no, we didn't really mean it. That really has nothing to do with anything. That's just a charade. Don't do that to the American people. We don't like it. The left and the Democrats are very good at doing that, the bait and switch. Well, now these so-called conservatives are doing it to us, the constitutionalist voters. 
You can go ahead and try to play that, pull the rug out from under us if you want. Well, you don't understand uh, that the voters don't really control the process. I know that. You could try to do that if you want, but I'll tell you what, what you have not explained is that if you try to steal this nomination from Donald J. Trump, how are you going to make up for the void of a record number of primary voters who went out and voted in the primary and put Donald Trump over the top of 1,237 delegates? How are you going to fill that void? If you think these people are going to turn around and vote for another candidate, you try to shove down our throats like you did with Bob Dole, like you did with John McCain, like you did with Mitt Romney. And then you think, well, we can afford to lose the presidency in 2016 and we'll regroup for 2020. There is no 2020 for you, GOP establishment. Right now, Donald J. Trump is forming a new majority in the Republican Party. You know who else did that? Ronald Reagan. And what I mean by that, I'm not saying that Donald Trump is as conservative or as constitutional as Ronald Reagan, but Ronald Reagan had to form a new majority. That's what Trump is doing. And all of you never-Trumpers, you're going to be wandering out in the desert probably for the next 40 years. You know what's going to happen to you? You're probably going to have to become libertarians because you aren't going to have a party. And you aren't going to have enough of a base of support to ever win elections. You'll have to become libertarians. Is that what you want? So here's another attempt by this cabal to steal the nomination from Donald Trump. A Virginia delegate files a lawsuit to avoid voting for Donald Trump at the Republican convention, arguing it's a violation of his constitutional rights. You have to be kidding me. Carol Correll Jr. argues being forced to vote against his conscience is a violation of his constitutional rights. Correll of of Winchester believes Trump is unfit to serve as president. Well, that might be his opinion. But he doesn't get to make that decision for the rest of us. And he's trying to do this as a class action lawsuit. First of all, this guy ought to go back and realize that every state has different primary rules. He can't file a class action. As you know, Some delegates are uncommitted. Some states have a winner-take-all. Some apportion the delegates out based on the amount of primary voters. So if you're from a state that that is a winner-take-all, and you're from a state whose rules say, no, we're going to portion them out based on the uh, percentage of the vote, those are two different sets of rules. You can't file a class action. He doesn't have to be a delegate. He can resign. It says here that Trump won Virginia's Republican primary. He filed a suit in federal court. I thought this was a private process. Didn't the RNC keep telling us that this has nothing to do with the government and that this is a private venture, this this primary process? 
So it says here he seeks a judgment on behalf of all delegates to the Republican and Democratic convention. You know who behaves like this? And this is why I get into this definition of a principled conservative. This guy, would he call himself a principled conservative? You know what being principled means? Having a set of morals and ethics. This is what Democrats do when they can't get their way. When they can't put forth enough voters to have gone out and defeated Donald Trump in this primary process. When the Democrats can't get their way, they run to court. This is what the left does. This is what liberals do. This isn't being principled. The process was what it was. And Donald Trump got more votes than any of the other 16 or so candidates. That's too bad. Remember, I was from from the beginning of this process all the way until the time Donald Trump reached 1237. I said, I'm not endorsing. I'll get behind whoever wins the nomination. Not whoever is handed the nomination by some sleigh of hand. Sleight of hand. Or some chicanery, some some smoke-filled back room. If this guy thinks he has a case, this isn't the way to do it in, in court. He needs to take his case to the Republican National Committee. He needs to go to the convention and convince convince enough people to change the rules. I won't like that, but guess what? That's how he should do this. Going to court? This is a weaselly. This is what the Democrats and the liberals do every time they don't get their way. If he doesn't think, or if he thinks he's being made to do something, well, then he should, you know what, resign as a delegate and say, I'm out of this. I don't like the process. I respect that. I don't respect this. And I don't respect I don't respect these people calling themselves principled conservatives. No, they're not. They're weasels. That's exactly what they are. Coming up, we're going to hear from Pat Buchanan, uh, his take after Donald Trump's uh, major speech last week. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. If you're crossing the border in the desert heat, and it's 110 or 117 degrees, and you're hot, and you're tired, and you're thirsty, Mm -hmm. how about this? Stay home. Okay? Don't come. Don't come here. You... (laughs) Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. To David Clark, the People's Sheriff. So we're going to get into Pat Buchanan's political commentary last week after Donald Trump's major speech that people are calling a reboot and they're making a big deal about it. First of all, you should always be reassessing and adjusting. How many times hasn't Mrs. Bill Clinton rebooted her campaign? And nobody said, nobody had a problem with it. The media elite, when I say nobody. Here's another story. Kentucky donors give little to Donald Trump. These are 
usually GOP donors. Here's another story. GOP strategists on Trump, quote, not even the best digital strategy can help him. And then we have George Will. George Will last week announced that he was changing his voter registration from Republican to unaffiliated, to which I say, good. We don't need him. These are the people who have controlled this party. George Will is one of those media elitists that I talk about. You know, there's there's several classes here. There's the political elites. There are the donor elites, the donor class. There are the party elites. And they're the media elites. George Will is from that group, the media elites. George Will, when he talks, thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. George Will looks down on us, the voters. George Will is the kind of guy that gave us John McCain and Mitt Romney. That's what George Will brought us. We don't need him. And as Donald Trump forms a new majority in the Republican Party. He needs to purge it of people like him. These guys are subversives. They're weasels. And it's about time we start calling these people out for who they are. They're scoundrels. And they need to be left behind. George Will. So Pat Buchanan had a piece. I admire Pat Buchanan. And here's what he said. Has Trump found the formula? Stripped of excesses, Donald Trump's Wednesday speech contains all the ingredients of a campaign that can defeat Hillary Clinton this fall. Indeed, after the speech ended, Clinton was suddenly defending the Clinton Foundation against the charge that it is a front for a racket for her family's enrichment. The specific charges in Trump's indictment of Clinton, she is a mendacious, corrupt, incompetent, and a hypocrite. Hillary Clinton is a world-class liar. This is a quote, said Trump. She faked a story about being under fire at a Bosnia airport, the kind of claim for which TV anchors get fired. She has lied repeatedly about her email server. She lied to the families of the victims of the Benghazi massacre by implying the atrocity was a spontaneous reaction to an Islamic video, not the premeditated act of Islamic terror she knew it to be. Buchanan says, drop world class and Trump's case is open and shut. His second charge, quote, Hillary has perfected the politics of personal profit and theft and may be the most corrupt person ever to seek the presidency. End quote. Particulars, Bill Clinton got a $750,000 in return for a speech from a telecom company facing State Department sanctions for providing technology to Iran. The Clintons got the cash. The telecom company got no sanctions. Quote Trump, Hillary Clinton's State Department approved the transfer of 20% of America's uranium holdings to Russia while nine investors in the deal funneled $145 million to the Clinton Foundation. Trump added, quote, she ran the State Department like her own personal hedge fund, doing favors for oppressive regimes for cash. Together, she and Bill have raked in $153 million since 2001 in speaking fees from lobbyists, CEOs, and foreign governments. 
These figures are almost beyond belief. Sherman Adams had to resign as Ike's chief of staff for accepting a vincuna code from Bernard Goldfein, who had problems with federal regulators. When ex-President Reagan, after brain surgery, visited Japan to receive the nation's highest honor, the cotton cordon of the Supreme Order of the Chrysanthemum got a $2 million fee from the media company that hosted his nine-day visit. Our liberal editor pages vomited out of their revulsion and disgust. Where are those media watchdogs today? Rather than condemning the Clintons' greed, their conflicts of interest, and their egregious exploitation of their office offices, the media are covering for Hillary and digging for dirt on Trump. To substantiate this charge of incompetence, Trump notes that Clinton as senator voted for arguably the greatest strategic blunder in U.S. history, the invasion of Iraq. She pushed the attack that ousted Colonel Gaddafi and unleashed terrorists who took over much of Libya and murdered our ambassador. She played a leading role in launching the insurrection against Bashar Assad that has left hundreds of thousands dead, uprooted half of Syria, and sent millions of refugees to seek asylum in Europe. Primary beneficiary, ISIS, with its capital in Raqqa. And a hypocrisy charge? Though Hillary and Bill Clinton profess to be fighting champions of women's equality and gay rights, they have banked millions in speaking fees and tens of millions in contributions to the Clinton Foundation from Islamic regimes under whose rules women are treated as chattel and homosexuals are flogged, beheaded, and stoned to death. Who do major media let them get away with uh, such hypocrisy? I should say, why do media let them get away with it? Because ideologically, politically, socially, morally, and culturally, the major media are with them. While making the case for the indictment of Hillary Clinton, Trump also outlined an agenda with appeal not only to nationalists, populists, and conservatives, but working class and minority Democrats. If Trump is elected, an economic system rigged to to enable big corporations to leave and take factories and jobs abroad and bring their goods back home, Free of charge to kill companies that stay in America will end. Globalism will be replaced by Americanism. Trade and tax policies will be rewritten to to provide incentives for companies to bring jobs and factories here. Was this not also Bernie Sanders' message? He stood against NAFTA in the 1990s when the Clintons colluded with the Bush Republicans to impose it. In his peroration, Trump spoke of what we Americans had done, how we had lost our way, but how we could together make her great again. His finale was surprisingly aspirational, hopeful, and inclusive. In this political year just ended, several unmistakable messages have been delivered. First, the record turnoff for Trump and remarkable turnoff for Ted Cruz represented a repudiation of Beltway Republicanism. Second, the amazing success of 74-year-old socialist Bernie Sanders in keeping Clinton in battle until California showed that the Democratic young have had enough of Clintonism. A majority of the nation said loud and clear, we want change. Hillary Clinton's vulnerable vulnerability is that Americans distrust her. No one believes she represents change, and she has no agenda and no vision. Her campaign for president 
is all about her. As Trump noted, even her slogan is, I'm with her. Rough and raw as it was in part, Donald Trump's speech on Wednesday contains the element of a campaign that can win. Again, Patrick Buchanan. Well-spoken, well-articulated, not talking over anybody's head like George Will likes to do. Coming up in the next segment, we're going to go to something that uh, Thomas Sowell, a, a column he wrote on gun control. The Blaze Radio Network, on demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Find more on demand at theblaze.com slash radio. Buck Sexton. But the left doesn't even say now you can't make fun of certain cultures, you know, lest you be called a, a racist, a xenophobe, or whatever. But they never stop, right? They're never actually content with whatever cultural victory they have. So now you have to add on top of that, you can't even praise, you can't even be happy for, you can't even be a part of indulging in aspects of a culture that you may really love. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Okay, we're going to switch gears here for a minute. We're going to push the Thomas Sowell piece on gun control back to the final segment. I want to talk about a couple things before I go into the Thomas Sowell piece on gun control. First of all, we had another terror attack, Istanbul, Turkey, at the airport. Again, every time one of these happens, we need to... Skewer President Barack Obama for his infamous comment that the terror group ISIS is the JV of terror organizations. He's also said numerous times that uh, his strategy has weakened them, that they're decimated. He has them on the run. None of that is showing to be true. His miscalculation on this from the beginning It's been a disaster in terms of foreign policy and has had implications on the world when he missed numerous opportunities to get out ahead of this thing and use all of the things available to him, the diplomatic routes, sure, you want to do the economic sanctions, yeah, that's fine and, and all that, but you have to be willing to use your military might as well. I think it's one of those all of the above that he likes to say about his energy policy, which he lied about. He continues to dismiss what this is actually about. Radical Islamic terror. It's not just about saying the word, you know, people say he won't even say it. He doesn't recognize it as such. And neither does Mrs. Bill Clinton, who will be nothing more than a continuation of the Obama policy as it relates to terror. Now this thing has grown so big that nothing short of an offensive military operation over in the Middle East is going to get rid of this thing. That probably could have been avoided. It's like anything else in life. When you ignore a problem, it gets worse. It doesn't fix itself. So now... I don't know, nearly 50 dead, 150 injured, give or take a few. 
Istanbul, Turkey. And then the reaction around the world in the United States. I get tired of this too. Now everybody's scrambling. They're, quote, beefing up their security presence at airports. <laughs> Why? Why weren't they beefed up last week? This thing that happened in Brussels at the airport and this thing that happened in Istanbul, Turkey at the airport had nothing to do with the fact that they didn't have effective security in place at the airport. These guys in Turkey, and, and the same with, with uh, in Brussels, use explosives. What difference does it make? When these guys were outed at the Istanbul airport and they were assaulted by the security at the airport, they detonated themselves, killing everybody and anybody around them. So I hear that the airports in the United States are all beefing up their security presence. Why'd they back back off after 9-11? We should have continually stayed in that mode. And this is what we do. This is all, it's just smoke and mirrors. In the news reports, and if you go to the airports, you're seeing a, a, an increased presence. Why did it leave? Why did it leave after Brussels? We did the same thing after Brussels. It never should have left after 9-11. The increased security, the increased presence. This is a dog and pony show. And after Istanbul settles down, within 30, 45, 60 days, the increased presence at the world's airports will go away. Until the next attack at an airport, and then everybody will scramble to increase security. That's not effective. It should stay in place. Period. Until further notice. When is until further notice? When ISIS is gone. When the terror threat is has been eliminated. I don't understand this approach. I, I really don't. I go over to the Middle East and I see soldiers stationed everywhere. All the time. Bus stops. Public squares. Public areas. And sure, every once in a while, you know, there's a stabbing attack or somebody could detonate an explosive over in Tel Aviv or, or in the, 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 uh, the old city of Jerusalem. But it's a little harder because their security presence doesn't go away after a while. It stays in place Permanently. And that's what we're going to have to do here. I just continue to scratch my head over this approach. And it starts in the White House. Continuing dis- continually dismissing the threat. Well, it's not has, has nothing to do with Islam. It's not all Muslims. It's not I get tired of being lectured by this buffoon of a commander in chief that we have. I don't need any lectures. Do something, damn it. Do something effective. I had to catch myself there. Do something effective. So uh, let's let's move on to this. A, a new poll out from Quinnipiac, or Quinnipiac, however you want to pronounce it. 
I've heard it pronounced both ways. And it has virtually a dead heat between Mrs. Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. And I remember several weeks ago, I remember this. There was a poll that came out, and I can't remember who did it, but that's not important. But what the poll showed was that Mrs. Bill Clinton was up by double digits. And I put out a tweet when that happened. And here's what the tweet said. I mean, it's almost like it's prophetic. The tweet says, from me, take the poll that has Clinton up by double digits and wipe your rear end with it. By November, it will be too close to call and within the margin of error. You know what the Quinnipiac poll shows today? Statistical dead heat. And I'm not surprised. These pollsters like to play games. They can continually sample different people and ask different questions, and the poll's going to show different results. I don't care if the poll two weeks ago or the poll from Quinnipiac said Trump up by five. I'm not buying it. This is going to be a close election. There's no doubt about that. So that's why I say don't don't get all mostly worked up when, you know, Trump supporters, oh, Trump's behind, oh, he's behind Red Dove, oh, he's falling behind. Don't, don't worry about that crap, folks. Don't do that to yourself. Another story, interesting, from Reuters. Justice Department mandates implicit bias training for agents and lawyers. The United States Department of Justice announced on Monday that more than 33,000 federal agents and prosecutors were received aimed training aimed at preventing unconscious bias from influencing their law enforcement decisions. What a bunch of crap. We used to call this brainwashing. Now it's called unconscious bias training. You see what happens when we let the left cleanse the language and they control the narrative. This is brainwashing. Plain and simple. This is the same agency that was ordered by a court after it was found that the lawyers in the immigration case before the, the court lied to the judge about what was going on and he ordered ethics training and they still haven't done that. This is what these people need. It's ethics training, not brainwashing. All right, coming up in the next segment, we're gonna, I'm going to read the piece from Thomas Sowell on gun control. You're listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. I mean, you're working a lot of hours, you have low pay, you're stressed out. That leads to workplace violence, in Ist- like in Istanbul. No. So I'm guessing workplace violence in Istanbul. Well, last night, 36 people killed, 147 wounded. I don't think uh, the people strapping bombs to their chest and walking to the airport has anything to do with workplace violence. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Okay, in the final segment here, let's get back into this gun control issue, which I think is a non-issue. There is no public support in the United States to 
drastically alter the Second Amendment, nor is there any public support to eliminate the Second Amendment or, you know, through the constitutional process, amend it or repeal it. And the left knows that, so they have to try to do it in this uh, this way of trying to get lower courts to acquiesce to their nonsense. And then they try to do it through liberal areas enacting certain laws, testing our resolve. Here's a piece by Thomas Sowell. I, I refer to Thomas Sowell a lot. Great respect for him. Just the way that he thinks and the way that he can articulate things in a very easy to understand, unlike George Will, who thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and tries to talk over everybody's head. Thomas Sowell doesn't do that. This is from uh, a commentary piece that I found on Rasmussen, the gun control farce. Surely murder is a serious subject which ought to be examined seriously. Instead, it is almost always examined politically in the context of gun control controversies with stock arguments on both sides that have remained the same for decades. That's what I mean when I said uh, (laughs) nothing's changed in this thing. Back to the story here. And most of those arguments are irrelevant to the central question, do tighter gun control laws reduce the murder rate? That is not an esoteric question or one for which no empirical evidence is available. Think about it. We have 50 states, each with its own gun control laws, and many of those laws have gotten even tighter or looser over the years. There must be tons of data that could indicate whether murder rates went up or down when either of these things happened. But have you ever heard any gun control advocates cite any such data? Tragically, gun control has become one of those fact-free issues that spawn outbursts of emotional rhetoric and mutual recriminations about the National Rifle Association and or the Second Amendment. If restrictions on gun ownership do reduce murders, we can repeal the Second Amendment, as other constitutional amendments have been repealed. Law exists to protect people. People do not exist to perpetuate laws. But if tighter restrictions on gun ownership do not reduce murder, What is the point of tighter gun control laws, and what is the point of demonizing the National Rifle Association? There are data not only from our 50 states, but also from other countries around the world. Professor Joyce Lee Malcolm's empirical study, Guns and Violence, The English Experience, should be eye-opening for all those who want their eyes open, however small that number of people might be. Professor Malcolm's book also illustrates the the difference between isolated cherry-picked facts and relevant imperial evidence. Many gun control advocates have cited the much higher murder rates in the United States than in England as due to tighter gun control laws in England. But Professor Malcolm's study points out that the murder rate in New York has been some multiple of the murder rate in uh, in London for two centuries And during most of that time, neither city has has serious restrictions on gun ownership. As late as 1954, there were no controls on shotguns in England, Professor Malcolm reported, but only 12 cases of armed robbery in London. Of these, only four had real guns. But in the remainder of the 20th century, gun control laws became even more severe, and armed robberies in London soared to 1,400 by 1974. 
As the number of legal firearms has dwindled, the number of armed crimes have risen. Is her summary of that history in England? Conversely, in the United States, the number of handguns in American homes has more than doubled between 1973 and 1992, while the murder rate went down. There are relevant facts available, but if you you are not likely to hear about them from politicians currently pushing for tighter gun control laws or from mainstream media when those facts go against the claims of gun control advocates. Despite hundreds of thousands of times a year when Americans use firearms defensively, none of those incidents is likely to be reported in the mainstream media, even when lives are saved as a result. But one accidental firearm death in a home will be broadcast and rebroadcast from coast to coast. Virtually all empirical studies in the United States show that tightening gun control laws has not reduced crime in general or murder rates in particular. Is this because only people opposed to gun control do empirical studies? Or is it because facts uncovered in empirical studies make the arguments of gun control zealots untenable? In both England and the United States, those people most zealous for tighter gun control laws tend also to be most lenient toward criminals and more restrictive on police. The net result is that law-abiding citizens have become more vulnerable when they are disarmed, and criminals disobey gun control laws as they disobey other laws. The facts are too plain to be ignored. Moreover, the consequences are too dangerous to law-abiding citizens whose lives are put in jeopardy on the basis of fact-free assumptions and unexamined dogmas. Such arguments are a farce, but not the least bit funny. Again, that's Thomas Sowell. I don't have to say anything more than that. There's nothing I can add. You know, we've heard this over and over and over again. There's no empirical data, no empirical study or research that's peer-reviewed that shows that gun control will reduce violence or reduce mass murders. But here's what this has always been about for the left. This has always been about the NRA. Because the NRA, with nearly 5 million members, is a very strong voting block and a very strong influence on Capitol Hill to protect the Constitution. Members of the NRA are opposed to these leftist gun control zealots, and that's why they want to destroy or break up the NRA. Not because they believe that gun control would work in terms of reducing crime or violence or mass murders, but they want to break up this powerful voting block. It's always been that way for the left. In closing, I want to comment on this sit-in, this ridiculous infantile activity by Democrat members of Congress in the House of Representatives because they couldn't get their way. Now, here are grown men and women acting like high school or college-age kids at a sit-in at a student union. These people have no dignity. John Lewis. John Lewis ought to be retired by the people in his congressional district. He's like an aging fighter who thinks he's got one more fight in him. When you know darn well if he gets in the ring, he's going to look old and slow and he's going to get pummeled. You seen John Lewis lately? 
This guy's just hanging on. That's all he's doing. He, he has no influence. Matter of fact, these new generations of, of black people growing up, they don't know who the hell John Lewis is. And he's up there leading the charge as if he's the reincarnation of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He's far from it. And I know it, it's not in vogue to say anything about John Lewis, anything negative about John Lewis. John Lewis is an embarrassment. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining me. Follow me during the week on Twitter at Sheriff Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E, at thepeoplesheriff.com. Enjoy your week, and God bless you. David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network.